All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our class on 1 Samuel. Last week we had a problem with the recording, so I, I just took a look trying to figure out where we had left off, and I'll do the best we can. I think it's toward the end of chapter 18. Before we begin, uh, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As I mentioned just a moment ago, it, if memory serves, uh, we left off at the end of chapter 18. Now what we have in terms of narrative here is uh, David and uh, Saul going back and forth. And of course we've seen um, Saul because of his wickedness. God through Samuel has denounced him. He's going to lose his throne. David has already been anointed. David is going to be the true king. And it behooves us, I think, as we read these scriptures to remember and see that you know, God and specifically Christ is the true king of the people of Israel. When they desire an earthly king, this is not a good thing. And that's what we see first and foremost with Saul. It's, it's not a good thing. Then in David, we have a positive type of the kingship of God, a, a good reflection of, of who our Savior Jesus is, a man after God's own heart. It's not to say that David was perfect. As we will see, by no means was he perfect. Many moral failings, uh, spiritual failings, etc. But again, it, it behooves us to, to understand that behind this text is the face of Christ Jesus, our Savior, our true King. And we always want to see that as we're studying the scriptures. It is these scriptures that speak of him. And we can note, too, that in the kingship of Saul and in the kingship of David, we actually have a, a type here because synonymous with kingship is anointing. Saul is anointed into the office of king. He's christened. He's Christed. And the same is true with David. In Saul, then, we have a kind of anti-Christ, an anti-anointed one, one who does not reflect who Christ is. And in David, we have one who is a true Christ, a true anointed one, who reflects to us in many ways who Christ is. You'll see, then, throughout the narrative, the anti-Christ, anti-king, Saul, attack the true Christ, the true king, David. And so we have a type here, really ultimately, of, of Satan and Christ uh, you know, going, going uh, with, with Satan, trying to persecute and attack uh, Christ in the figures of Saul and David. So we want to keep that in mind, too, as we uh, go, through, go through this section of Samuel. All right. We, of course, have been introduced to the fact that Saul's own family has turned against him. Jonathan, who's the heir, the son of Saul, 
His loyalties are with David. In fact, they already went through this rite in chapter 18 where Jonathan strips off his princely robes and puts them on David as a sign that that Jonathan recognizes the Lord has anointed David. David is to be the next king, and Jonathan is going to help him in that. And then also in chapter 18, we have David marrying a daughter of Saul, Michal. And as we'll see, uh, Michal ends up helping and aiding David over and against her father's murderous intents as well. So we've got these two children of Saul helping David, at least at this point in the narrative, and, uh, and blessing him over and against their father. So with that kind of uh, reintroduction, let's jump into verse nine, or excuse me, chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, is seeking to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Here, of course, referring to David defeating Goliath. You saw it and rejoiced, Jonathan continues to Saul. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and, and uh, Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. All right, so here then uh, you, you can see that Saul even swears an oath on, on the Lord um, that he's not going to kill David, and of course he's going to break that oath, no doubt about it. We see Jonathan acting as a godly mediator, as he has done previously in this um, in this book, and we've seen John, Jonathan acting in a godly way uh, in this book as well. So that's what's going on there. Let me, let me just take a look here. Yes, just looking back in the narrative to see. This is when it would benefit us to have other people in the in the room with me. I could ask if anyone else knows where this is. Well, be that as it may, let's let's just simply carry on. Chapter 19, verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, 
so that they fled before him. Now this is a recurrent theme too, as we've seen in this section of 1 Samuel, where uh, David continues to fight, the Lord continues to bless him with victory, David's prowess increases, David increases, Saul decreases, and this of course upsets Saul the egotist immensely. Verse 9, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the and he sat in his house with the spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So looking back at chapter 18, verse 10, we see this same pattern take place now here in chapter 19. So back at 18.10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. So there in chapter 18, there's, there's two evasions. Here in chapter 19, there's one evasion. There's three total evasions. While Saul, this anti-king, this anti-Christ type figure, tries to pierce David, uh, this Christ type figure. And of course, we can see, again, if you see this typologically, Satan versus Christ, Satan finally pierces uh, Christ Saul finally gets David when David is on the cross, when Christ is on the cross. And that's when then the devil actually takes the spear in the hands of the soldier and pierces David's son and David's Lord uh, with the spear in his side. But even then, um, even though the Lord does not evade him as David does here, uh, from his side flow forth water and blood. And as, as John tells us in his first epistle, these three testify as one, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So the Holy Spirit bringing testimony through the Word of God, the water and blood, uh, showing forth the sacraments, the water of holy baptism by which we are made new, the, the blood of the chalice by which our sins are cleansed and we're given the life of Christ. Water blood and spirit crying out such that even when Satan finally gets his way and pierces the Lord's side, he is overcome entirely by what flows forth from our Lord's side. Those very things that put an end to Satan's kingdom, to sin, to death, to hell, to his powerful reign. All these things are blotted out by the water, blood, and spirit. Of course, the spirit given in John's gospel, just as John account, re records the water and blood flowing from his side just prior to Jesus dying, he, um, he hands over his spirit. He doesn't give up the ghost. He hands over his spirit so that from the crucified Christ, from, from Christ crucified, the Lord of glory flows forth these three things, water, blood, and spirit. So, uh, again, all of this foreshadowed here with Saul's attempt to pierce David and then Satan's uh, piercing of Christ on the cross. Um, verse 
So much, uh, back to the narrative, so much for uh, Saul's oath to the Lord. I mean, he's openly blaspheming. This is more of the kind of cynicism and pragmatism we've seen from Saul, where the words coming out of his mouth and the actions done by his head, they're, they're all done in lip service. Uh, they're all done in deceit, so that he swears an oath on the, on the living God. Uh, meanwhile, he doesn't believe in the living God at all, um, and he breaks and violates his oath not, not but a few moments later. Well, this creates a real problem for David because he doesn't know how many spears he's going to be able to evade here. And not even the mediation of Jonathan seems to be enough to, to solve this problem and, and guarantee David's safety. So we read towards the end of verse 10. Not only does David elude Saul, but then the, he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Picking up then, verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So again, you can see David, or you can see Saul's daughter helping David. Of course, they're married. Um, I guess that's no guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michal comes up with this, uh, this plan, so she, you know, and look, it's, it's her, it's her pushing David, you know, you've got to escape or you're going to be killed. So then verse 12, so Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Okay, so she's got um, she's got this this dummy of her husband in the in the bed. Verse fourteen. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, "Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him." So this is a this is a bizarre kind of thing, a, almost a scene from a movie. Perhaps even there's some there's some supernatural element here, um, God blinding their eyes, although the text says nothing of that. So who knows? Uh, just conjecture. They they go they grab the bed they grab the beer whatever it is that he's on and uh, assuming he's sick and immobile and and not moving and they pick him up and and carry him off. Uh, that's that's the picture we're given here. Bring him up to me in the bed, Saul says to the messengers, that I may kill him. Here you see the mercilessness and nastiness of, of Saul too. These, you know, he assumes that David is you know, sick, perhaps even sick unto death, certainly sick unto incapacity. And he doesn't care. He's going to kill him. Verse 16, And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair, at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, of course, David said no such thing to her. This sounds like a threat, right? In other words, she's, she's probably saving her own life here uh, by this deceit. Um, 
And so she, uh, she s says to Saul, look, uh, David threatened me. Um, he was going to kill me unless I helped him escape. So I helped him escape. Verse 18, now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And poor Samuel, he's in retirement. He doesn't want to be troubled with all of this. But of course, when David, the Lord's anointed, comes to him, he's, he's happy to help in what ways he can. So uh, David comes to Samuel, tells him everything that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, Verse 19, and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Nioth and in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. Now, this is, this is a bizarre bizarre event, a bizarre part of the text, and very difficult for us to wrap our minds around as 21st century Westerners as to what's going on. E even frankly, in the text we've read heretofore from Genesis on, this, this text stands out as a truly unusual text and difficult to know exactly what's going on. Um, I mean, the theme is simple enough, but what is this prophesying and the role of the Spirit, etc.? Uh, but as we'll see, what it is is an intervention by the Spirit of God uh, to mercifully spare David's life and to do so in a very miraculous, very counterintuitive way. Saul, as we just read, sends messengers to kill David the Holy Spirit rushes upon them, overcomes them, so that they end up prophesying. Now, to us here in the 21st century you know, United States, we tend to think of prophesying as predicting the future. That tends to be the primary meaning. And while it certainly can mean that in a, in a biblical or theological sense, you know, again, prophesying being proclaiming some future event, what's going to happen, predicting the future, that kind of thing. That's not always the case biblically, and maybe particularly uh, the emphasis biblically, particularly in the Old Testament, prophesy being um, almost a form, of, a form of worship, proclaiming the words of the Lord, proclaiming the glories of the Lord, um, perhaps has some sort of ecstatic element to it, um, but... Uh, but again, nothing like the modern Pentecostal movement. Like there's not a bunch of silliness, a bunch of rolling around and barking and that kind of thing. Uh, but, but perhaps a sort of ecstatic element to it, as we'll see from the text, where um, there's, there's an excitement, there's uh, perhaps a movement of the, of the body, uh, maybe chanting, that kind of thing. It's hard to know. It's hard to know what's going on. I mean, the text just says prophesying, but you'll see what I mean. It's a strange text. The one thing, though, that isn't strange, that is perfectly clear, the Holy Spirit 
intervenes so that David's murderers end up uh, prophesying instead of murdering him. And this happens not once, but three times, I believe. So let's go a little further in the text. Again, 20 is where we left off. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again uh, the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secu. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. Now, this is a peculiar thing that he doesn't go to the right place. He knew it was the right place. Uh, and it's recorded in the narrative so that we get this event that takes place next. Verse 23, and he went there to Naoth in Ramah. In other words, as he's traveling from Seku to Ramah, um, the Spirit of God comes upon him also, so that as he's journeying, he begins prophesying. This is verse 23, and he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. I mean, this is so strange. Saul, who has three times tried to murder David through his messengers, each time turned away as they prophesied by the Spirit of God. He has no fear of the Spirit of God. He goes down there to kill David himself, and he's overcome by the Spirit of God, so that as he's traveling the last leg of the journey to get to David, he begins to prophesy. Even as he's going to murder David, he's prophesying. This is just so bizarre. So bizarre. And I'm sure there's... Yeah, it's just so bizarre. And just how interesting. I mean, again, I don't have anything profound to, to say about this. But it is fascinating the character of Saul, and the actions of God here. Just fascinating. Because you have, you have not only God sending the, the evil spirit upon Saul that afflicts him. Then you have David counteracting that by God's grace and power through the liar. But then the, the, the impulse of the spirit, the evil spirit becomes so great that... Uh, even while David's playing the liar, Saul almost murders him. And then here God sends not an evil spirit, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God upon, upon Saul. And, and Saul, trying to, trying to murder David, ends up prophesying. It is, it is just truly a marvelous text. And I, I'm, no doubt there's some great wisdom hidden here. I've just not been granted it yet. Um, I simply recount these things for yourself and for me uh, that we can marvel together at, at how um, strange, bizarre, and wonderful this work of God is. And it gets stranger, <laughs> perhaps even a little bit harder to understand. All right, well, middle of verse 23, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, 
and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Okay, well, this is kind of bizarre. The stripping off of his clothes, what's going on here? Now, the grammar, the ESV does a nice job in terms of communicating the literal grammar, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel. But there is enough ambiguity there that there's the possibility of translating it in this way. He stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel. So, you basically have, I mean, maybe you've got more options than this, but as best as I can tell, you've kind of got three options into reading this very peculiar text, okay? Everyone else was sitting around uh, with their clothes stripped off, presumably naked, and then uh, Saul came and joined them in this. He too stripped off his clothes. But that doesn't seem quite right. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it doesn't seem to quite be quite right because the naked prophesying, there's not a whole lot of this in the Old Testament to say nothing of the scriptures. Uh, this is strange. Similarly, the emphasis on, on being naked and, and stripping off clothes and, and even the clause um, later on that says that he not only stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel, but lay naked all that day and all that night. I mean, that, that seems to be the author really emphasizing the shame, the fallen state of uh, Saul, the embarrassment and shame that he who had come to murder is now exposed and out of his mind and, and naked. That seems to really be the intent. So that's diminished if you have all the other prophets naked. Anyway, Here's one option, and I think it unlikely, them all naked. The second option, um, much, more, much more probable, is that in the, in the process of, um, of prophesying, they stripped off their outer garments. Um, and that doesn't mean stripped down to their underwear exactly. You can think of when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet in the upper room, he stripped off his outer garment and, and washed the disciples' feet and then put his outer garment back on. Um, in, the, in the vigor of prophesying, it may be that the prophets stripped off their outer garments and then uh, Saul not only strips off his outer garment, I mean, they're there, and he too stripped off his clothes. See, so they're all stripping off their outer garment. Okay, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked. That would be unique to Saul then perhaps. He lay naked all that day and all that night. Um, so those are, the, those are two options. Um, and, and then the third would simply be that Saul alone is, is um, you know, that, that he's just prophesying. That's the, that's the linkage. He too prophesied. And the language of he too stripped off really isn't, is, uh, we ought to read that as um, he alone stripped off his clothes. He alone lay naked. So those are kind of your three options. I sort of think two is probably the most probable. Next, otherwise three, I think it very improbable that they were all naked. I think that, that it's kind of bizarre um, for the text. I, I mean, I think, the only other thing that pops into my mind remotely to this in the, in the scriptures that had a very specific purpose is I think it was Isaiah goes, through, goes throughout um, prophesying naked, but he does this 
I mean, specifically to show the shame of the people. The prophets sometimes embody these, para, these parables or have these parabolic embodiments in their actions, like Hosea marrying Gomer, the prostitute, like Yahweh marrying the Israel, who's a spiritual prostitute, for example. Isaiah prophesying naked specifically to shame the people, their nakedness and shame and their lewdness in um, going after false gods and the sexualized worship, the sexual immorality. But I don't, I, don't, I don't find that likely here. So this is a bizarre text. It's a bizarre text. Um, but, but what we should see narratively here, too, is in the same way that Jonathan strips off his robe and outer garments to put on David to symbolize that David is next in line, that David is next in line to be king. Here, Saul strips off his garments and is entirely naked, and that is a symbolic action showing he is divested of his kingly office. He's divested of his kingly office. So, and thus also naked, the shame of that. So this is a highly symbolic thing. He who went to murder David is divested of his office and lays naked and ashamed. We, we have something similar even, um, you know, when a, when a pastor sins grievously or, or is taught uh, or, or teaches persistent false doctrine, we say that he's defrocked. The frock is removed. There used to even be a ritual for this, a public ritual of defrocking the fallen priest or pastor. So this is, this is essentially what's happening with Saul. He's being, he's being defrocked. Um, let, me just, let me just read a little here from the study notes uh, so you get that perspective as well. Uh, just looking at the study note on verse 20, the prophets often lodge together with fellow prophets. The Spirit of God protects David by causing Saul's messengers to prophesy under a divinely induced trance. Yeah, so that's what I meant really by the ecstatic uh, comment that I had made earlier. This is a trance. What else? In regard to stripped off, the study note says, in contrast to his messengers, Saul behaves especially strangely. He takes off his royal robes as though casting aside his royal office. He has lost all control of himself. Ah, yes, and then this, this sort of saying or byword that emerges is Saul also among the prophets. This demands a negative reply. No, to question Saul's behavior as a prophet is to question his legitimacy as king. I mean, this is, iron- this is an ironic. Is Saul also among the prophets? Certainly not. Um, and, then, and then you would also say, is Saul also the king? Certainly not. I mean, it's by way of parallel, I guess. Anyway, that's all the more that the study note gives to us. Um, the study notes give to us. This is... Yeah, this is a bizarre section. A bizarre section. I think it shows us too, I guess, by way of kind of icon or type, um, the madness of those who attack Christ, the madness of those who attack Christians. Ultimately, their own evil uh, works itself on them. Saul ends up stripping himself, uh, symbolic of his uh, loss of uh, his kingly office and his nakedness and shame. Okay, well, 
moving on. That's the best we can do. Chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Verse 2, And he said to him, Far from it you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed, saying, uh, again saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. All right, so what's going on? Um, finally, David you know, comes to Jonathan. He says, look, I'm pretty sure your dad tried to kill me a bunch of times, maybe even came down there to kill me himself. Jonathan says, in effect, you know, well, I'm, I don't think so. He would have told me. David says, look, you're compromised. He knows that you, that you like me, that we have an alliance, that we're friends, and so he's not going to tell you his plans. Uh, you know, Jonathan, Jonathan's skeptical at first, but then compliant, and he, you know, he basically says to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. Like, what do you want to do? So David comes up with this plan, and we'll take a look. As so many times in the... You know, in these, te- in these texts, we found that there's a, there's a plan concocted, a, a way in which they're going to deter- determine what is the truth and what they're going to do. And so they're going, to, uh, they're going to set up this experiment, so to speak, and find out uh, Saul's true intentions. So David uh, begins describing this in verse 5. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. Uh, of course, Saul. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. So David will be expected at the table, but he's not going to be there. Um, In regard to the new moon note, um, the, the note says, apparently Jesse's family gathered for a special time of worship during the new moon celebration. Anyway, I'm not exactly sure how that note fits, but I could just be missing it. Again, uh, too bad we're not here together. You could clarify it for me. Verse 6, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. I think that that's what the study note refers to, but it's just confusing to me because Jonathan, I mean, because David ends up not going down. I guess that's the pretense. Well, verse 7, if he says good, he being Saul, of course, if he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. So again, this is how David and, and Jonathan, you know, that exchange has gone. This is, they view it as a, a covenant of the Lord that's between them. If there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. Now, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. 
Because this is what David says to Jonathan. If there is guilt in me, you know, look, if I've done anything wrong to you, if I've done anything wrong to your father, if I've done anything wrong to the nation, then, then kill me. You know, well, I guess I should read this first before I get on my soapbox for just a minute, but now I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a minute. <laughs> uh, well, this is a category that we Lutherans, it's a biblical category, and we Lutherans desperately need to rediscover this category. This is uh, righteousness, not vertical righteousness before God, but horizontal righteousness before men. I mean, again, try to, try to read this with stereotypical 20th century, 21st century Lutheran eyes. And, and how, would we, how would we treat this text? Okay, David says, um, look, if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? You know, and, and a Lutheran would treat this text, well, of course you're guilty, David. I mean, you may not have actually murdered him, but you've, you know, surely you've had a negative thought in your heart against, against uh, Saul, so therefore you are guilty, like this kind of thing. And it, I mean, this is nonsense. It's all throughout the Psalms, David talks about this righteousness, this horizontal righteousness that he has with his neighbors, even with his enemies. He hasn't treated them wrong. Uh, it doesn't, like in, in, this, in this category, what you think or what you feel, that doesn't amount to anything. It's what you say and what you do. This, this too is the category of blamelessness. You know, we, we've lost this ability to, like where a pastor is required to be blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless, obviously. So then we just negate the whole text as if it doesn't mean anything, as if it's just some sort of law rhetoric. Again, we need this biblical category of blamelessness or righteousness, not before God, not vertically, but horizontally before one another. A pastor is blameless, uh, not in his thoughts or in his heart. That's not even the, that's not even the measurement. Is he blameless in his, in his words, in his deeds? Does he do anything that's manifestly sinful? Does he say anything that's manifestly sinful? If not, then he's blameless, at least in this instance. He's righteous, at least in this instance. That's precisely what David is here arguing. So what's going on then in a text like um, the Sermon on the Mount? You have the Pharisees in the first century, who this, this category that I've, I've been talking about, this, uh, this horizontal category, that had eclipsed everything in the, first, in the mind of the first century Jew, particularly in the mind of the Pharisee, such that if I am, uh, if I am externally righteous towards you, that I'm externally righteous toward God. That is my vertical, my horizontal righteousness and my vertical righteousness. And this is what Jesus so skillfully attacks in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in his preaching. You know, you think just because you haven't murdered someone with your hands, you've kept the commandments? No, I told you. If you've even thought in your heart that your brother is a fool. But look at, what, look at the move Jesus makes internally, in your heart, in your mind. Um, then you are guilty of murder. Or, you know, you think, you, you think just because you haven't committed adultery on your wife, you've kept the Sixth Commandment. No, I tell you, if you've even looked at, looked at another woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. So again, Jesus says, but look, before God, 
righteousness is not just a matter of word and deed. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. Righteousness is a matter of the mind, of the inner person. That's why Jesus calls them whitewashed sepulchers, because outside, in terms of word and deed, they can say we're righteous, but inside, they're full of dead men's bones. Inside, they're full of all sorts of sin and lust and covetousness and deceit. And that really is us in our fallen state, you know, as human beings. We can only be externally righteous, externally law-keepers, while internally we've got all, everything we do, including our law-keeping, is in self-interest. It's all apart from faith. It's all self-centered. It's all sin. So Jesus very exquisitely cuts this to pieces. And then we Lutherans have picked up on this, and we've specialized in cutting this into pieces and doing the kind of theology Jesus is doing. And that's great, and it needs to be done. And it, and it might even be the primary category. But, you, but, but there is a second category. There is, there is an other side to this coin. And that other side of the coin is this way of it speaking not righteousness before God vertically, but righteousness before man horizontally. And you see this all the time where in the scriptures, and we just don't know what to make it of it as Lutherans, so we do all these mental gymnastics, and it's just silliness. In a given instance, in a given interaction, in a given episode, maybe overall even in someone's conduct, you can say that in word and in deed they've been righteous. Uh, again, horizontally to other human beings. They've been blameless. So, no, Jonathan doesn't swoop in here like a super Lutheran when, when uh, David says, look, if I've, if I've done anything, if I've sinned in any way, kill me now. Jonathan doesn't swoop in like, like a super Lutheran with his sword out and say, okay, I'm going to put you to death then because obviously, you know, you've got sin somewhere in your heart. No, this is just granted. And many, many of the Psalms are this way. Many, many of the Psalms in a way that we Lutherans have no way to read it other than to, to simply say, well, that's self-righteous. Or only Christ could play, pray that. Well, I, you know, the impulse that only Christ could play that, fine, great, and pray that, and fine, great, and, and, and it's you know, essential or most profound meaning, that's true. But how could David pen it? He could only pen that, that he's righteous, that he's blameless, that, and, and use that as a criteria for which God should, should um, protect him against his enemies. He can only do that if he's got this horizontal category of, look, I've done them no harm. I've done them no harm, and they're attacking me. So we need to recover this as, as Lutherans, as ironic as that is, so that we've got two sides of the coin. We can speak like, like Jesus. We can speak like David. Um, that's what we want to be able to do. So, uh, yeah, that's my soapbox on that point. But, again, it's just instructive to read the text and see that the quote-unquote Lutheran move is never done. And it's not even the quote, it's not even a quote, it's not a valid move, it's not even a Lutheran move. There is this category of horizontal righteousness. So David says quite plainly, if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? 
And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. All right, so again, just narrative-wise, um, I know your dad's after me. I'm not so sure he's after you. He would have told me, um, you know, what if he tells you, uh, what has the language here, roughly? I mean, that can, that can mean he misleads you. It could also mean he threatens you, um, puts your life in jeopardy. If you say anything, I'll know, that you, I'll know it was you and I'll come kill you. you know, Saul, that, Saul's not above any of that. Okay, but anyway, Jonathan leads him out into the field. And then verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. So this is a big deal. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. <clears throat> if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Yeah, so the, here's, a, here's a beautiful exchange. And um, basically, David doesn't trust Saul. Jonathan um, is, is playing intermediary, and David isn't sure he can trust Jonathan, not because Jonathan's going to do anything wrong, but because Jonathan's own life might be risked. Jonathan might be lied to or deceived. So here Jonathan swears an oath, and it's a beautiful oath, and it's on the basis of, of God's anointing David so that, um, you know, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. This is Jonathan speaking from the house of Saul, from the house of Jonathan forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David. So he's convinced that David is the Lord's anointed, and he wants to, on that basis, serve David. Okay, so then, now here we carry on with the narrative and the plan. Verse 18, Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the, new, is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself, when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows on the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. If I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. All right, so they concoct this, this plan, um, basically of David's absence, to try to fetch out Saul's true intentions toward him. Um, 
Jonathan promises that when he finds out, he's going to let David know. And then he, he comes up with this plan with the arrows that you've just heard so that he can signal to David whether he's safe or whether he should flee. Anyway, that's all we've got here to four. It's, it's very poetic. It's very beautiful. It's covenantal. It's faithful. Uh, it's, everything's, you know, I mean, it's just a very beautiful narrative. And, uh, but in terms of the ideas communicated, it's quite simple. It's quite straightforward what's going on here. Verse 24, so David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. As the study note points out, this is ritual uncleanness disqualified a person from participating in a religious celebration and from community involvement. Because uncleanness was temporary, Saul became suspicious when David was absent longer than necessary. You know, you can become unclean by accidentally coming into contact with something dead. You know, you're walking through the forest and you step on a carcass or something like that. I mean, there's a number of ways you can become unclean. So that's what's uh, thought to be the case here by Saul. Verse 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Okay, well, this was previously discussed, of course. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Well, they have their answer. So, uh, Hit the study note with me on uh, verse 30. In terms of him calling his mother a, a perverse and rebellious woman, Jonathan's mother was Ahinoam, back in chapter 14. That Saul says this of his own wife shows how much he has lost perspective because of his loathing of David. And he's insulting his son, too. So he hates his wife, he hates his son, um, all because he hates David. Gosh, there's a sermon right there on our grudges, isn't it? Like, when we have grudges against people, we end up so single-mindedly obsessed about hating those people that all the other people around us, we hate. Uh, we get sick of them. We, um, they, maybe they get sick of us nursing our grudge, and so then we get sick of them and lump, lump them in with our grudge. 
this, I mean, this extreme to which Saul takes it is maybe not normal, but the behavior itself is quite human, quite fallen, quite universal. All right, well, just continuing with the study note. Saul intends to curse Jonathan rather than his mother, as the rest of the verse makes clear. And then the language of shame and nakedness. Saul suggests that Jonathan is so disloyal to his father and his uh, that his mother is reduced in status from the bond of wedlock to that of a prostitute. Uh, probably like, like in the most visceral, nasty, insulting terms, you know, Jonathan, you're a sellout. Um, you've allied yourself with David, and David is, uh, and David's going to be king and not you. So you're a complete fool for doing this uh, to boot. I mean, this is just really nasty. And to hear this from your father, I mean, must have been very hurtful. And of course, this is the Lord's anointed, too. There's a spiritual component, you know. Very, very hurtful. And Jonathan has done nothing but in this text but operate in good faith and loyalty to God, loyalty to his country, loyalty to his father as the Lord's anointed insofar as he can be. So these just bitter, bitter words. Verse 32, Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? I mean, this is exceedingly bold. After what his father, I mean, his father's murderous intentions and what he's shown and what he's just said to Jonathan, this really bespeaks the character of Jonathan. What a man to be able to just manfully take those insults and then turn and assert, like not in anger, not in returning insult for insult, but just straight up justice. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him, you know, his own son. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. I mean, I don't want to make a... Maybe Saul should have spent a little more time aiming. I think this is his four. <laughs> I think he's over four in terms of trying to spear people. Um, but this is incredible. I mean, negatively, negatively, we see so much of Saul in, in our fallen flesh. But positively, we see how, how manful and virtuous Jonathan is in this extreme situation, in this, in this situation that must have been extremely emotional for him, to have the Lord's anointed, the king, and your father say and do these things unto you. And then to be able to stand up politely, manfully, and assert justice. And then to have him try to kill you. It's just incredible. Really incredible. I mean, Jonathan is certainly one for us to look up to and strive to be like. Verse 34, And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger. Well, yeah, just had a spear thrown at his head and ate no food. And he may even be more angry, angry because, of, because his dad wants to kill David, who's the, also the Lord's anointed. Ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, exactly, because his father had disgraced him. Yeah, disgraced David. I mean, again, this just has such character on the part of Jonathan. He's not even upset for himself. He's upset that 
that his father uh, has said these things about the Lord's anointed, the Lord's next chosen king. Seeing that we're out of time. Well, we'll just have to leave off there in the midst of this narrative. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. It's, it's just um, it's very, very intriguing. And uh, it's a fascinating retelling of this history. It's a fascinating history between these two. And I think there's so much to take, take in if we're willing to be uh, meditative upon it and if we're willing to, to see the, you know, the negative example of Saul and have that lead us into our own confession before God, receive his absolution and see the positive example of Jonathan and strive to be manful, virtuous, humble, um, a servant under the servant of the Lord, um, just as Jonathan was really, really an incredible example. Well, with those thoughts, I'll, I'll leave you. And uh, next week, we'll pick up here at chapter 20, verse 35. The Lord be with you.